Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover all of book one of The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. Let's start the show. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jay. This is exciting. We've made it through the first book of the series, The Gunslinger, and we thought we'd take an episode to go over some of uh, the major themes, some of our thoughts as the book overall, and then also we thought we'd start with some listener feedback. And before we get into listener feedback, I just wanted to thank everyone for giving this podcast a chance. Um, we're very excited to be reaching you and talking to you on a biweekly basis about uh, all the themes and ideas of the Dark Tower. So it's exciting to see a small but loyal community start to build up. Absolutely. It's really exciting to see those download numbers tick up day after day. Yeah. So uh, again, it would be much appreciated if you could spread the word about this podcast to Stephen King fans, you know, Dark Tower fans, you know, um, readers, you know, because I think uh, encountering these books might be helpful for them. Um, and again, if you enjoy this show, feel free to rate us on iTunes because that does help. All right. Well, we thought we'd start with some listener feedback, as I mentioned, and we got some great questions. And the first one comes from Heathen King on Twitter. And in a tweet storm, he said, and I think this was in response to one of the comments that I made in our episode on chapter one, Heathen King says, I feel I have to point out the George Lucas of one aspect of chapter one revision. Does the revision make Roland appear less cold-blooded for mowing down everyone than the original? When I originally read it way back in like 1994, I thought the point of Tull was to be like, this is not a good dude. Matter of fact, he's a cold-blooded murderer who cares nothing about the human costs of his pursuits of either the man in black or the dark tower. And Heathen King wraps up by saying, it's the hand shot first problem, so to speak. So uh, great question from Heathen King on our thoughts. Jay, I know you had some thoughts on the George Lucasness of the revision. Um, what? How do you respond to Heathen King? Does the revision make Roland appear less cold-blooded? I don't think so. Uh, in short, I think um, it makes him a bit more complex and makes his, his motivations maybe a bit more convoluted, but I don't think he's any less of a cold-blooded killer. So while it, there is a touch of George Lucasiness to these changes, I still stand by my general opinion that these retcons that Stephen King has made to the revised edition of book one enhance the story. I think that making it a more intertwined part of a larger story helps the book. When he first wrote the original edition, the book suffered from being part of a smaller world. And as King wrote the rest of the books, that world grew and grew and became an even more fascinating place to enjoy the story. So we're getting back to the nature of Roland's character and being a cold-blooded killer. I don't think the reasons that he does some of these things that he does, like killing everybody in Tall, um, it changes for one character. But I believe Roland saw a slaughter coming and he didn't really see a way of avoiding it. So by staying in Tall more than just an hour and passing through, I think he he accepted the fact that there's a 
there was a chance that he was going to have to kill a lot of people to get out of the town alive. He knew it was a trap when he walked in and he stayed anyway, just to see how it played out. And it kind of played out exactly the way he expected it to. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree that, you know, I think you mentioned that it, it changed for one character and the way he, the way King has changed Allie to go from no, 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 no in the original version of the book to please kill me. It does seem more of a mission of mercy for that character when it comes to Roland shooting that shooting her. But we have to remember he still slaughters 50 some odd men, women and children. And someone who was a not not a cold blooded killer might have been able to escape without killing that many people. And so uh, I agree with you that I don't think Roland's character is necessarily softened by the revision either. Um, between this scene as well as Jake and some other pieces, it's very clear that Roland is stubborn and set on his main goal of the Dark Tower. So. I agree that I don't think he softened too much in the revision. And I think that while it's not really, it doesn't impact the character of Roland, I think it actually improves the reason for Allie to take the action she does to put her in the place where she is when she dies. Mm. In the original version, there didn't need to be, or she didn't need to be, one of the people coming after Roland. Of everybody in the town, she was pretty much the only one who maybe wasn't a, an ally, but she definitely wasn't against him. Sure. So she didn't have a reason to rise up against him. She didn't attend the insane church services of Sylvia Pittston. Uh, so she wasn't part of that mass hysteria. So she didn't need to be there. Um, now she has a reason to be there, and it's because she's gone mad, and she's crazy or possibly crazier than the rest of the town, but for her own reasons that make sense in the structure of the story. I would agree. Allie comes back, not as a ghost, but like her image haunts Roland in future chapters. So thank you very much, uh, Heathen King. We appreciate the question and hope you continue to listen. All right. So the next question we have is from Angela Y. And she asks, what does the name of your podcast mean and why did you choose it? So, Angela, great question. The name of our podcast, Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, is inspired by the Robert Browning poem, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came, which was an inspiration for Stephen King in coming to this book. Um, it is a romantic poem about a soldier. In fact, Browning was inspired by King Lear, by Shakespeare originally. And so there's this lineage of literature that King has drawn upon, and uh, we're two guys, so it seemed like appropriate to swap out Child Roland for this. Um, you know, we brainstormed dozens of names, Jay. I think before we came yeah. up with this one, and I think this is one that we just sort of both were drawn to uh, once it got put out there. Yeah, I felt like it spoke to a slightly deeper or meta knowledge of the Dark Tower. So if you were coming to this podcast as a already a fan of the, the series, you might recognize that and see a camaraderie in, in the level of fandom that we have for this, these stories and these books. And also it had kind of a, a catchy, if long-winded name that uh, kind of stood out a little bit. We were able to get the URL pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we cannot fit that into our Twitter handles or Gmail handles, which is why you're emailing two guys dark tower or at two guys dark tower for our Twitter. But it still works. Right. So Angela, just to whet your appetite, Sean and I'll read a little bit. The poem starts out with this stanza. My first thought was he lied in every word, that hoary cripple with malicious eye, askance to watch the working of his lie, on mine and mouth scarce, able to afford. Suppression of the glee, 
the pursed and scored its edge at one more victim gained thereby. Thanks. And so the last stanza goes, There they stood, ranged along the hillsides, met to view the last of me, a living frame for one more picture in a sheet of flame. I saw them and I knew them all. And yet, dauntless the slughorn to my lips I set and blew Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And again, it's uh, available everywhere on the internet. It's only about 205 lines long, and I'm sure there's much better analysis of that poem than uh, (laughs) I know I could do. It's been about 20 years since I studied poetry at Kent State University for grad school. Thanks for the question, Angela. It looks like Angela had another question too, didn't she? And we're not going to talk too much about this, but Angela also asked, anything you hope will be done in the movie or anything you hope won't be done in the movie? Um, I'm coming to the movie fairly agnostic. I haven't seen anything or followed much of the news other than I know who's playing the two main characters. Uh, I think my big interest, rather than hopes what they will or will not do, is just sort of how they're going to adapt this into a movie. I know the plan is not to do seven movies, and I don't think the plan is to fit seven books into one movie. Um, I'm just interested to see what the first movie will consist of and how they're going to deal with some of the flashbacks and some of the back and forth and that sort of thing. Jay, do you have any thoughts on the movie? I guess I'm most interested or intrigued as to how they will portray the characters that we've come to know so well from the books. You know, is the movie version of Roland going to be anything at all like the book version of Roland? And is the and the same question for The Man in Black? Um, you know, we, we know the actors who are going to portray them, and I think that they are both really, really talented and could bring a lot to the roles. But the question is, will they? And if if they change the fundamental nature of these characters, it, that's what has me the most worried too, is that uh, the movie just won't feel anything like the books. It'll just be a bunch of characters doing things and they happen to have the same names and that's about it. But I don't know that that'll be the case. So I'm trying to remain uh, open-minded in my expectations. But if I had my druthers, I'd probably say this should probably be some sort of epic animated series because this just goes in too many different crazy directions and different genres and the scale and scope of this. It's just uh, if this were something like a heavy metal style or something, I think that would be a pretty awesome way to, to bring this to life. Yeah. Well, HBO is going to need a new fantasy series in a about two years so well yeah i mean that if uh rome and game of thrones and westworld can't prove that they have the chops for it i mean i think that's the way to go there's just too much content to try to pack this into movies yeah and again i think there had been talk that there's going to be a movie and then it might transition to some sort of television series as opposed to just staying on the big screen um Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if that's been totally confirmed or not i know there's a lot of excitement around it People have been clamoring for a Dark Tower movie for as long as I can remember, I think. Um, Yep. And I think it probably took the success of shared universes like the Marvel Shared Universe and the Lord of the Rings saga, perhaps, and the DC Universe to sort of say, hey, we want in on that sort of well-known brand name that can become a huge moneymaker for the studio, so... We will have to wait and see. I think Jay and I are planning on doing a brief podcast when the trailer is finally released to give sort of an initial thought on it and get people excited about the movie. So you might be seeing that in the next couple weeks. Yeah, that's the plan. All right. Uh, We had uh, one final question um, from Sonia, and this was emailed to us. 
And really, she wanted to explore the meaning of Ka. Sonia's question had some spoilers in it, so we don't want to get too deep into it. But I think one of the things that I wanted to point out, because she said it was such an important theme in the book, is that King's revision, it seems like Ka is given a little bit more prominence. Would you agree with that, Jay? I do. Uh, I think the concept of Ka that King developed in the subsequent books was only very, very lightly touched upon if at all, really, in the original edition of the book. And uh, he came to really rely on it for just about everything in the later books. And by weaving it back into this, the revised edition of the first book, it gave him a reason to set characters on certain paths and start longer arcs a little bit earlier in the story. Uh, Sonya's question, without revealing what she was actually talking about because of the spoiler nature of it, um, talks about that. An event in this book hints at something that becomes much more important as the story progresses. And it is the nature of Ka, or which is King's word for basically fate or destiny, that makes things unavoidable or the implications of things uh, unchangeable. And I think that it's definitely much more important in the new revised edition of, the, of this book. Yep. So Sonia, we're going to keep your question in our back pocket and potentially answer that in some of the future books, or at least follow the idea of Ka along, because as Jay said, it does become more important in the books to come. All right. Thank you all for your feedback. Again, anybody is welcome to share feedback with us on anything that we've covered, and we're more than happy to answer this. We'll try to answer them as we go along in the podcast or fit it in where it makes sense along the way. So feel free to Hit us on Twitter, on Facebook, or via email with your questions. Yeah, keep the feedback coming. We'd love to hear from you guys. Great. Um, so, Jay, we're talking about the book as a whole now. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big questions I had was, does this book work as a standalone story? We talked a little bit about how originally this book was a number of short stories, and then they were compiled into one book that was eventually published, and then published as a mass edition and, and revised. And, you know, I think having read the chapters one by one, they flow together and you can make sense of what's happening from chapter one, two, three, four, five. But if I were to have picked up, let's say chapter three by itself in the original magazine of fantasy and science fiction, I might be like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> um, and so I think it's a legitimate question that we have to ask as a standalone book, especially for people who, you know, after reading Pet Cemetery, found out that this book existed in the other works by Stephen King and were excited to read it uh, when they finally got their hands on it, when it was published as a mass market paperback. What do you think the thoughts were? Did it work as a standalone book? Is it need more context? Is it just sort of, what, what, what are your thoughts? It's hard to answer that in a very straightforward way. And it's even more difficult because there are two versions of this book in my head. I think that because of the nature of the ending of the book, it can't work as a standalone story. Anything that ends in just a flat out cliffhanger the way this does, um, I guess you could make the argument that there's a character who has a goal and he satisfies his goal by the end of the story, you could say, okay, complete story. But that goal is satisfied in a way that only says this is the end of the beginning and there is so much more for you to do. If King never wrote another page of this story, I don't think anybody would ever have been satisfied with it as a story. Um, but I think that the original edition of the, of the book worked slightly better as a standalone because King didn't work all, all of the retcons that he adds in makes it even harder for it to stand on its own because he has all of these, essentially he put flashbacks 
into this book that make even less sense if you don't get the li- the rest of the story. And so it's he introduces even more characters and even more concepts and even more world building that without uh, without continuing the story beyond its final page of book one, I think it's even harder for it to stand on its own. So short answer, no, it doesn't because it's standalone. I would agree. Um, I'm looking at the original... 1988 i think the 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 plume paperback with uh, michael whelan illustrations and in his afterward king says the foregoing tale which is almost but not quite exclamation point complete in itself is the first stands in a much longer work called the dark tower so king even admits it right on the second page after you flip up from the end right um having said that i think i would agree with you that the original might stand alone a little bit better than the revised edition. And my question to you then, when you read the revised edition, do you read it as a, and I know it's hard to put yourself in this mind space, but like, as you read it, I would imagine a new reader would be much more, what the heck is going on? Whereas a constant reader who's read the entire series would be like, oh yeah, I get that. This is mm-hmm. cool because he mentions this and this is going to come up in book four. And, oh, look, he talked about this and this is setting up something that happens here. And, oh, this is a very subtle clue to X, Y, and Z that's happening later. Um, and does it seem like it's writing more for existing fans than it is for a reader to the story? Or do you think that King has done enough to make it subtle enough that it really just adds to the experience? I think more the latter. If you think of the entire book series as one book, it's fair for an author to set things up in the beginning of the story that pay off at the end of the story. And so to set things up in book one that pay off in book four and five and seven, um, I think that's fair too. And the fact that he just didn't have the world built yet, he didn't have the whole story arc set in his head yet, going back and taking the opportunity to set up a few more things so that the things that come to follow those things later on have more impact, have more weight, or more meaningful. I think that's fair for him to do. And I think that if this is your very first time through the book, it's just good foreshadowing. Hmm. You might not get a payoff on that foreshadowing for several more books, but at this point, all the books exist now. So it's just a matter of how quickly can you turn those pages. (laughs) Good point. Good point. I think you and I have talked about this before, how some of my favorite writing of King's is the introductions to the short stories or the forewords and afterwards to books. And the discussion in the afterward talks a lot about how this book came to be in the gestation period. I think he said it took 12 years to write. He basically started writing it when he was 19. And it was mm-hmm. almost entirely based on the fact that he got a whole ream of paper that he wanted. Yeah. It, was, it was oddly shaped and it was colored green. And he's like, oh, I want to do something special with this. Um, obviously Tolkien was an influence. We talked about how Browning was an influence and spaghetti westerns. The good, westerns. the bad, and the yeah, yeah, right? spaghetti westerns. Spaghetti and... westerns. And, you know, I think it's just very, hey, when you're young and ambitious, hey, I, I can write a 3,000 page novel and sure, I'll have a seven book series. Why not? I'll go for it. So um, it's to be forgiven that in that 12 year period of writing the book and King has admitted not only here, but elsewhere that he's not one to create an outline and build the entire structure from beginning to end, right? He goes where the the work takes him. So even in this, he realized it was going to be a long story, but he did not realize, hey, what's going to happen with these characters? What are the answers? He, he basically admits that up front. So 
he can be forgiven for that. But again, it would be odd to come to this book. And I'd be interested to hear what our readers think who might be approaching this for the first time. You know, how difficult it was for them. Do they think it works as a standalone? Does it pay off or do they get to the end and feel like, hey, I got my money's worth and I'm ready to go? So, Critics have talked about whether authors are more of an architect or versus a gardener. Sure. I don't think King is one or the other entirely, but I think especially in the Dark Tower books, he definitely was more in gardener mode. And it wasn't until he had sown and grown and brought in the entire crop that he realized that you know he should have planted a few extra seeds in the beginning. And he took a moment to do that. And um, I think the finished product is better for it. I think it's fair also. I mean, what's interesting about this book, and you and I have also read book two already, and we're not going to spoil that here, but it is a very different book from book two. And I do think that The Gunslinger is a very different book from anything else King has written for a number of reasons, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. But um, I think that's one of the other reasons that it just seems odd when you get to the end. Like It doesn't seem as much of a complete story. I mean, we really only have four or five characters throughout the book, and all but Roland are dead at the end of this book. So that's that's odd too, right? Like It's a lot more like a lot of his short stories Yeah, in that way. Yeah, yeah. It's it's his longest short story. (laughs) There you go. So um, I didn't have a whole lot of luck finding contemporary book reviews of The Gunslinger. Um, I did find one by Kirkus that came out uh, in 1988. And um, they state that it was printed in a limited edition hardcover in 82. And I don't think this is positive. This King novelty at last achieves mass publication. King fans will find little to celebrate, however, in the derivative portentousness of this first volume in a threatened 3,000-page epic western set in a blighted future. Um, Yikes. (laughs) Portentious or pretentious? Portentiousness. Derivative (laughs) portentiousness. Wow, and it threatens 3,000 more pages. Yes. uh, The spice in this tired sauce, however, is pure king, fantastic, and grandiose. Okay. Later on, after going through a little bit of the plot summary, what's all this futuristic neo-Wagnerian posturing about? Something to do with the debt of honor, of course, vengeance for the death of the gunslinger's father and the dishonoring of his mother, and something to do with tarot wrapped pseudo-mystical prattle, wherein beyond the gunslinger's yearning for the man in black lies his lust for the dark tower. Heavy, real heavy. <laughs> Not a positive review uh, by Kirkus, but uh, they did... They did note that sales undoubtedly would be heavy also, which they were right about that. Um, You know, the Dark Tower, it's interesting because King says, you know, I have a lot of readers and there's a big subset of my readers who have never read the Dark Tower. Um, Yeah. They've read everything I've read. to this day. Yeah, but not the Dark Tower. He does like a little, when he does readings where he he asks folks that. Um, But those who read it seem to love it. Uh, Amazon, four stars for the Gunslinger. Goodreads, four stars for The Gunslinger, and Library Thing has a 3.86 star. So um, again, a little bit of a self-selecting thing here, I think, for some of those online reviews. But again, fairly positive overall from a reader standpoint. So I kind of feel almost a little defensive against that Kirkus review. It's like, I feel like he missed the point. You know, it's like, oh, it's got mystical mumbo jumbo. that's like saying that Star Trek is crap because they have techno babble. Of course, that's like <laughs> part of the the genre. I mean, it's like how do you criticize a fantasy story because it has swords and dragons? That's silly. But I get the complaining about 
well, it's still going to sell a million copies no matter how <laughs> bad it is. Cause you get that all the time with like, you know, movies these days. It's like, oh, that's the biggest piece of crap movie, but it was a tent pole for the, the studio. So they're going to make a billion dollars. Yep. And that means that that formula works financially. So it'll just keep happening. But I think this book has a lot more going for it than just being backed by a famous author. It was very much a, a nice change of pace for King, especially in the mid 80s when, and I, this isn't meant to be a a slight when he was churning out books, you know, he was literally putting out two or three novel length books a year. Yeah, um, pretty you incredible. Know, and that's not even counting the fact that he was also doing some under a pseudonym because he was worried he was going to flood the market with too many books. Um, you know, anything King would sell. Uh, I think cocaine had to help with that, getting those books yeah. done. As, Cocaine's as a hell of a drug. <laughs> Turns out you work faster on cocaine. So, uh, but yeah. You get so many ideas. Yeah. And it is just a big change of pace, but beyond, hey, crazy dog attacks family, or hey, crazy car attacks family, or hey, crazy dead kid comes back and attacks family. Like there's, he's not formulaic at all, but he did have a lot of things that worked as a storyteller from a horror perspective that people came to expect when you said a Stephen King novel. Um, mm -hmm. And the gunslinger doesn't fit into that very well. No, not at all. I mean, it. I, we went through all of book one, and there really wasn't much of a of a horror aspect to it. I mean, the 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 moments under the the mountain with the slow mutants was maybe the closest. I would say the most king like horror that I thought was the death of Jake on the streets yeah. of New York. His like, description of his own death. That description, just the. The the setting, the way the way that Jake described it, the detail in that scene, you know, and maybe it's because it's detail we're used to, but we got a lot of backstory, which King likes to do with characters. So you heard a little bit more about Jake's father and Jake's mother and Jake's um, nanny, mm -hmm. um, just those types of details that we didn't necessarily get anywhere else. That seemed the piece that was most 80s King-like to me. All right, so I think we agree that it might not work totally as a standalone story, but overall, the story seems to work. Is that where we landed on that? Yes. Seemed fair. All right, so if we agree that it works on a story, I think our next question is, what's sort of the overall theme or purpose that King's getting at here? Is there more to it than just, hey, I'm telling an interesting neo-Wagnerian spaghetti western that could rival Lord of the Rings, or is he going for some sort of bigger idea or thought here? It's a pretty heavy question. The answer is yes. Okay, moving on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, but what are we supposed to take away from this, Jay? Like, is it just, hey, cool, look, a gunslinger who seems like a badass walked across the desert and he's on his quest, or is there more to it than that? What what do you take away from it? Well, I think it's a, a fascinating, maybe not experiment, but exploration in the muddling of genre. Uh, I don't think that King intentionally did that. Like He didn't sit down at his typewriter with that green paper and think, I'm going to write something that's just a, a mashup of all these these types of stories. But he started with his initial ideas and he let the story take him where it did. So I think that in and of itself is kind of interesting, but he definitely introduces some fundamental ideas. And we, we talked a, a bit when we were answering that question from Sonia about Ka. So like destiny is definitely fundamental to the entire dark tower story. And we get a good taste of it 
in the revised edition of, of book one. We start to get hints Roland is on a path that various forces have set him on this path, and the strongest one is his own Ka. So he will forever be on this path until he achieves whatever is at the end of that path. Hmm. I think that's a, a really important aspect to this. But there's also this idea of like, I don't know if this is a theme, but exploring the nature of, of Roland's motivations, it's really hard to to define him as a type of character. He's not a hero and he's not an anti-hero, at least not in this first book. He's a little bit of both and kind of neither. One of the fundamental aspects of his nature is his is that he just keeps going. He is this like relentless machine and he will not stop until he achieves his goals. And right now in this book his goal is to catch the man in black and he apparently will stop at nothing to achieve that goal. He will abandon all of his human connections. He'll sacrifice Jake to yeah. to do this. That's a journey that we walked side by side with him on and, and watched him make that sacrifice. And that's why he's like, well, you can't be a hero and do that. But then again, if getting to the Dark Tower is what his heroism requires him to do, then the sacrifice of Jake might just be one small stumble on that larger heroic journey. I don't know. But that's why it's really hard to draw a box around him. Yeah. And I think it's also tough just because we don't have the whole story on what is driving Roland yet. We know that the Dark Tower is important in some way, but mm -hmm. we don't know. I mean, we're getting we're getting bits and pieces of it in some of the backstory, right? We get the, you know, his father was a heroic gunslinger. And so to some extent, he's following in the footsteps of his father. There was some sort of rebellion moving on that the man in black, Martin Walter, was involved in. And there seems to be a, an element of vengeance at play, but I don't think that that can be all of it because the man in black is dead at the end of this and he's continuing on his journey. So we don't know, at least in this book, all of the things that are driving Roland. But we do know, to your point, he does have the single mindedness to get to the tower. Um, right. But, you know, he doesn't even know what the tower is. You know, that's one of the things that he's trying to learn from the man in black is what is the tower? What's there? You know, and, and he's just getting the answers himself. So. Yeah, at the time that he finally has this conversation with the man in black, up to that point, the tower has been little more than a fairy tale. Yeah. And when he sees the tarot card with an image of the tower on it, he's completely floored by this. It's like, it's almost as though he's seeing the, the tower itself. You know, his reaction is so fundamental or so, so intense. And all it is is like the, the description in the book just makes it sound like a, a chess piece. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like, like a rook. The Rook Tower, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like that's not what the Dark Tower looks like. The the nexus of all time and space, you know, that it's not just like a <laughs> a stone cylinder, but but still, that's what he saw on the tarot, and that was a really intense moment for him. But the tower just seems to be something that's sort of I don't know, uh, ephemeral. Yeah, I can um, see that. But he knows he needs to get there, and, and and to your point, we don't really know why he has this idea. When we meet him, he's already on the path to the tower and he's already he's already done who knows what right. <laughs> to to get to this point. Um, but he knows that he needs to reach the tower. Why does he know that? You know, and what what got him on that path, we don't know. And but apparently it's super important. And King doesn't really know either, I don't think. At least he didn't when this book was published. Yeah. It sounded cool in the Browning Palm and so. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is. And we're going to talk a little bit in our next episode. Um, you know, after this book, it, the next books have a couple page summary of where we're at as we lead into the the story. And in in that edition, King says some interesting things about what's happening that talks to that. But that'll be for next episode. Um, yep. Any other themes or, or that that you can draw out of here? I mean, obviously, I mentioned just quickly about sort of the relationships between fathers and sons. There's definitely some sort of relationship between Roland and his father. Um, you know, there's a little bit, he mentions it outright about the Oedipal complex or potentially quadrangle between his mother mm-hmm. and his father and, and the, and Martin, um, the, the relationship that Roland has with Jake becomes like a father son relationship of sorts. So I think that's part of it, maybe not as explicit as the ones that you've been talking about, but another thing that kind of feels like it's almost on every other page of the book is, is decay. Mm. The, the phrase, the world has moved on is, is, repeated ad nauseum and we hear about it we see it we even when roland has his vision of the the universe we even get this idea that maybe this is just the natural order of things that you know things come into existence and then entropy works its magic and slowly they disintegrate and return back to fundamentals and then they reform and then the cycle repeats and this idea of the world moving on this idea of decay this idea of things falling apart is uh, is definitely a big part of this. And that seems to be at least in part what's driving Roland. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to end that if he can, or slow it down. I forgot where I came across it recently, but it seemed to indicate that the the world hadn't started moving on until sometime during Roland's lifetime. Mm. And that seems like a revelation to me, but I always felt like the world has been moving on kind of forever. Like the the fact that there's this old, this ancient technology, like the old water pump at the way station and stuff like that. Um, that stuff is so ancient that the world moved on from there. And yes. then, and it's sort of had this slow but steady stasis of like sort of a medieval level of, of society. And now, it, and then it took another turn for the worse. And maybe that's what they're referring to that things were kind of okay at least relatively steady for most of roland's lifetime and the many generations leading up to his lifetime but his father was the last of the gunslingers to lead or Mm. to rule the city of gilead and and now roland is the last person of that society and, and of the this class of gunslingers and it all seems very recent but it also seems like it's been going on forever so I don't know. There's a confusion there. Like, has right. the world just always been moving on or did it just start? Yeah, th- I think that that's fair because I, I wouldn't have made that connection either, um, you know, because I'm with you. Like, it seems like it's been thousands of years since those things existed in Roland's world. The train mm-hmm. and the subway station and the water pump and the Amoco gas station, et cetera. So um, I'm going to pull a, a little bit further out from the book and sort of bring it into our world because when you mentioned the vision and how... Roland sees the whole cycle of decay and how he's a much smaller piece in a much larger world or universe and that there might be even more universes than what he is aware of. But during that discussion, the man in black talks about how there were people who lived in what seemed like a wondrous time, right? They had artificial insemination, they had cured cancer, they had all these wonderful gadgets and things. They even went to the moon. 
<laughs> and yet, despite all that, the people in that world didn't appreciate it or didn't see what a wonderful time they lived in, right? That it was just... They didn't grow by it. Yes, it was just things and not a sense of what does all this mean? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's some comment on that as well by King is to, you know, are we living in a time similar to that where we think, hey, look, we've got all this stuff and the world is great, but at the end of the day, we're not challenging ourselves enough or we're not doing anything of import with this knowledge that we have, um, that it's just sort of technological and nothing maybe necessarily human about it or and I wonder if King's contrasting that with the world that Roland lives in, where they might not have those things, but there are people who might have some sort of relationships more than others. I don't know. I might be stretching here a little bit. I might be thinking about things too much in terms of our current culture right now, as opposed to yeah. the, the culture that King was writing about 30 years ago. But um, it just, th- that passage struck me as unique within the book, um, maybe because it was more of a reflection on our world that the man in black was discussing. Yeah. And the man in black always seemed to be peppering everything he said with anachronistic things from different times and different places, things yes. that made little sense to Roland, but it gave the the man in black an excuse to have another, another joke on Roland's behalf. A little budge. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or at Roland's expense. And again, you know, we're talking about themes and purposes. I think at the end of the day, King would say he's a storyteller, not a philosopher. So, you know, he's not going to let a theme get in the way of a good story. And I do think that probably at the end of the day, King is really hoping for a good yarn here. Yeah. I think that was pretty apparent when uh, Roland asks the the world's oldest question, because (laughs) that was a missed opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. So we'll move on to our last topic on the book as a whole. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean the conversation's over. If you have other questions or thoughts, feel free to send those in. Uh, But one of the things that Jay and I wanted to talk about is character arcs and how does Roland change or grow over the course of this book? Um, Oftentimes people say what's unique about the form of a novel is that we start off with a character in one place and really the, the, the story is the arc of that character. Where does that lead us? We talked earlier about how this may or may not be a standalone story, but hopefully at the end of this novel, we've seen some sort of change or grow. So in Roland as the main character, I think all the other character arcs end in a flat line of death, <laughs> um, but but Roland continues on. So Jay, in, in your opinion, does Roland change or grow over the course of The Gunslinger? Over the course of book one, I think he does change, but I think those changes kind of come in the form of a concentration uh, or a distillation. I think he be, basically he becomes more of what he already was. Hmm. Um, in terms of being a cold-blooded killer, I think he becomes an even more cold-blooded killer. Um, in terms of somebody who has a devastating single-mindedness, I think he becomes an even more so over the course hmm. of the book. He basically keeps proving to us as the reader and to himself, maybe even to his own surprise, just how far and just how low he will go um, to stay on his quest and to achieve his goals. And even to the point of he knew how devastated he would feel about sacrificing Jake, but he did it anyway. And it was kind of 
pretty selfish. You know, he's like, oh, this is going to make me feel so sad. How do you think Jake felt? You know, but <laughs> but I, I think that there we we saw a a concentration of Roland's characteristics uh, over the course of the book. Does that count as a change? I think he's a slightly different person than he was on page one, mm-hmm. but I don't think um, I don't think he made any new discoveries about himself in the traditional sense of character arcs. How about you? No, I, I could see that. You know, it's it's hard because there is a gap in the character of Roland. You know, we don't know a lot about his childhood other than the what we get in the flashbacks, and then there's this big gap between when he earns his guns from the showdown with Court and then where we pick up in Tull. And we don't know what his life was like in those 12 years. There's hints of it that there seemed to be some battle and his relationships with Elaine and Cuthbert. Um, But it's hard to know completely what character he was. But from the character we see on page one to where he is now, I would agree that, you know, he doesn't change a lot. The book starts off with, the man in black fled across the desert and, you know, the gunslinger followed and it ends with the man in black's dead, but the gunslinger has a new mission, right? So he's no longer chasing the man in black. He's still chasing the tower though. Um, right. You know, it's, I, I'd like to say he's a little bit more introspective. Chapter one is him looking back when he's with Brown about what happened in Tull and sort of not necessarily it weighing on his mind, but at least reliving those events to figure out what exactly happened. Um, Chapter five, like you said, deals with him looking back on what happened to Jake. But again, he looks back on those things, but it is much more in the service of, hey, this is something I had to do to get to the tower. Yeah. Gunslinger's got to do what a gunslinger's got to do. <laughs> it is true. It is true. So um, yeah, everybody else, I think we don't get a sense of their character arc. So Roland is really what we're what we're looking at here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Jake had an arc, but it was cut short with his fall from from the the bridge and under the mountain and yeah the the man in black is a just a complete mystery we yeah. see him being this this trickster jokester type character for the few moments that he appears in the story and then he's gone there's no room for for growth in those yep. moments and who else is there Allie? and she's the the most uh, established character outside of the ones we just mentioned you yeah know, so no, we, we see more of an arc in in Roland in the flashback to his test of manhood, right? As he goes from a impetuous boy who's in a rush to get his guns to thinking out how can I best defeat Court and using trickery with David. Mm-hmm. And then even though he gets his guns listening to his teacher's advice and saying, you know, wait, slow down, um, think about what you're doing. Yeah. We don't know what happens after that, but we can assume that he doesn't go off and, and shoot Martin off scene right. two minutes later. So um, I'm guessing that we'll get more on that in the coming books, but we shall see. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. And, and even like Court doesn't change. I mean, Court is an old man and he's the, you know, he's trained three generations of gunslingers and he has his drill sergeant persona when he's doing the drill sergeant job but as soon as he changes roles to being like as soon as roland passes the test he is no longer his student and court is no longer his his superior now court is his roland's servant yes and he immediately changes gears so that i think is like court knows his place in the hierarchy of their society but i think he also 
reveals more of his true self. I think he actually cares a great deal about these boys that he's training and he is as hard on them as he is because he wants them to succeed and that that's his methodology but he doesn't do it because he's just a mean person or he wants to inflict pain he wants these guys to to become successful in their role as gunslingers so yeah even court as a complex and interesting as he is i don't think he changes over the course of the the story where he's in no, no. So a little bit of change potentially for Roland, but maybe maybe more of a understanding that he is who he is. And maybe to get back to where we were at the beginning, maybe that's the nature of Ka, right? He can only be who he can be. We'll yeah. see. We'll we'll see if that holds up going forward. And also if we look at this as one long story of the, the Dark Tower, this is just the first chapter. And how much of an arc should we expect the, the protagonist to have in just the first chapter? Very good. And that brings us to what will be the next chapter, which is going to be book two of the Dark Tower, The Drawing of the Three, as foretold by the Man in Black and in chapter five of The Gunslinger, right? So we end The Gunslinger in our discussion of it. Uh, We leave Roland on the beach looking out towards the sea and wondering where his adventures will take him next. And book two picks up Minutes, Almost hours, immediately. Yeah, yeah. Immediate, immediately after this. So uh, we're going to pick up quick. We're going to ease into book two. And unlike book one, which had very clear chapter delineations, um, there's a lot more chapters and they're broken up into sections. And for next episode, we will be reading the argument and prologue sections, which is about 15 pages or so, depending on what edition you have of the Dark Tower, the drawing of the three. So as you read ahead, be sure to read that. And we look forward to discussing that with you on our next episode. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. As always, links to all of our contact information is available in our show notes. And you can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter or Facebook by searching at Two Guys Dark Tower. The two is a numeral, at Two Guys Dark Tower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.